Hey everybody, good morning. I'm going to be continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms. Two weeks ago, I shared about the Psalms of Praise, and I talked about the poetic structure that those particular songs follow. And today I would like to talk to you about the uh, Thanksgiving Psalms. Now these are a kind of praise psalm. So there's praise and lament, and then under praise there's other genre like Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Psalms. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the structure that all of these psalms follow. And you may be thinking, like, who cares about structure? Well, why would we study, get to know, be familiar with the poetic structure of the psalm? It's the same reason why you don't want to ride a roller coaster with a blindfold on. Can you imagine being on Viper for the first time in your life? And as you're getting onto the roller coaster, the guy hands you a blindfold and says you have to wear that? Well, that would be terrible. That would be whiplash. That would be a whole lot of mess. Because when you can't see where you're going and you can't see the turn coming... You don't know when to lean. And you go down when you should go up, and you go left when you should go right, and you get very, very sick. Knowing what's coming and understanding, seeing uh, the, the things that are about to happen on a roller coaster are part of how you, you know, lean left and right and have a good experience. And it's just like that with knowing the structure, the literary structure of whatever it is you're reading in the Bible. The Bible isn't a book, it's a library, and there are different genres in the Bible. There's narrative stories, right, histories. There's there's poetry, like the kind you find in the Psalms. There's prose discourse. Uh, there's uh, poetic and uh, apocalyptic writings, like you find in Isaiah and Ezekiel. They're very metaphorical. There's a lot of imagery. There's different kinds of writing styles. And knowing what those styles are help you to interpret what you're reading better so that you can really hear from the Lord. So what is the structure, the poetic structure, of a thanksgiving psalm? There are four parts. Number one. There's a call to praise or bless the Lord. Hey, everybody, let's praise the Lord. Let's bless the Lord. The second part is a restatement of past laments. The writer of the song is remembering when they were crying out to the Lord in the past for something that was happening. Number three is a testimony on how God answered the prayer. He answered me. He saved me. He delivered me. He vindicated me. And the psalmist tends to tell you how. And then number four, there's a call to praise and bless the Lord again. These are the four basic parts for all psalms of thanksgiving. And there are many psalms in the book of Psalms that fall under the category of thanksgiving. For example, 107, 7, 100, 50, and 69. I've actually listed a whole bunch of them in your handout. And I'd encourage you to read some of those and see if you can discover or see or track that literary structure, that poetic structure. Today we're going to be focusing on Psalm 30. We're going to be reading that psalm. And it is fantastic. It is a wonderful song. It's a psalm uh, that starts by praising the Lord for past deliverance. The psalmist remembers how bad it was, and then he cried out to the Lord for mercy, and then God saved him, and he ends the psalm by saying, I will praise you forever. And that's a good ending. It's also beautiful. There's a very gripping, well-balanced, emotional language, and there are some great one-liners. These are verses that you see kind of used all over Christian circles. For example, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. That's a good line. Or how about this one? He turned my wailing into dancing. You remembered or you removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. And then my favorite, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You always have something to look forward to with the Lord. So what I want us to do is read the psalm together, and then we'll talk about each stanza and what it means for us as God's people. Psalm 30, a psalm, a song for the dedication of the temple of David. 
I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and you did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead and spared me from going down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, you, his faithful people. Praise his holy name for his anger. It lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping, it may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. So to you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I'm silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. What did the Lord do? You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, you pray. I will praise you forever. This is a great psalm. I'd like to summarize the text. In stanza number one, the psalmist explains why he's praising the Lord. He saved him from the pit of death. And we can identify with David and that idea of being stuck in a pit. More on that in a moment. In stanza two, the psalmist invites the congregation to sing to the Lord for his one-of-a-kind love and comfort. No other God is like our God. In stanza three, the psalmist remembers how before his troubles, he spoke like a self-exalting fool. And he fell into the pet, the pit. Now, this testimony is a warning to us to not get cocky. In stanza four, the psalmist shares his solution to get out of the pit. He cried out to, for mercy from the Lord. That was his big plan. That was his big move. And it begs the question, so David, what happened when you did that? And in stanza five, he tells us. The psalmist ends where he began, praising and thanking the Lord for his salvation. So when you read something like this, when you read Psalm 30, what is it that God is saying to you? What does it mean? How does it apply to your life? And as we read it as a congregation, the question is, what is the Lord saying to all of us this morning? Now, if you want to discern what God is saying, you want to hear his voice and understand his will, then you have to do at least three things. You have to listen and give your attention to the word of God. You have to give time and you have to ask questions. If you'll slow down, not rush through reading the Bible, but slow down and give your full attention, reading and rereading it, and then ask questions, layer by layer, word by word, phrase by phrase, the Holy Spirit will teach you. He will unlock this book and other books in the scriptures and show you wonderful things. He will apply it to your life and your circumstances. So I thought it'd be good for us to do that together. We'll go through the stanzas one by one. I'll share with you the questions that I had as I read them and some of the things that the Lord showed me, trusting that God will use this to build up your faith. So in stanza one, I titled that the Lord delivers from death. David writes, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and you did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. 
You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. And one of the questions I like to ask when I'm reading the Bible is, what are the words that stand out? Some of the words that stand out in this particular stanza were depth, gloat, help, and healed. With depth. What depths do we find ourselves in, typically as human beings? Depression, divorce, exhaustion, loneliness, shame, fear, guilt. These are all depths that we find ourselves in. David found himself in the depths. What about gloat? Do you have enemies? Yeah, you have enemies. The Lord had enemies, and so do you. Those who mock Christ, who spit on his word, who try to tear down what is good and right and true, these are the people who are at odds with the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. And they flaunt their sin in public. And they seem to be doing just fine. And then there's demonic forces that are at war with us as God's people. They want to tear us down, beat us up, and put us back in chains and darkness. And the good news in this stanza is that the Lord did not let them gloat over David. That's comforting to those who are under attack. Then the word help came up. He called to the Lord for help. And I thought, who do I call in times of trouble? Who do I count on to help me when I find myself in the pit? We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And the last word that stood out to me was healed. David seems to be on his deathbed. He's dying. And the Lord healed him. And that means the Lord can heal you. He can heal me. He still heals. Not every time, in every way that we ask, But our God is the healer. He is the healing God. And God's people have seen this and experienced this throughout the the scriptures and in the times after that and even today. Hezekiah, king of Judah, descendant of David, he learned in his day that the Lord is the healer. He was on his deathbed and the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to go see Hezekiah and tell him he should get his house in order Because he was going to die. Here's what it says in 2 Kings. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order. You shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah the king turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, Now, Lord, please remember how I walked before you in faithfulness and with my whole heart. And I've done what is good in your sight. And then he wept bitterly. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to go down to the grave. And it says, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life. Can you imagine? The Lord is kind and gracious, and he's a healer, and he healed Hezekiah. This is important because in this stanza, we are reminded of something that is true of every human being, every fallen son and daughter of Adam, and that is we're all sinking. We're all fading. We're all dying. Everything is decaying. This world is cursed. This is a curse that was placed upon the world and all flesh by God as a judgment for our sin. Because when Adam ate, we ate. When Adam sinned, we sinned. And when Adam was cursed with death, we were cursed with death. 
Death is not natural. It is unnatural. It is not what God created for us, his children, to have. But it is the just punishment for our rebellion against him. And David is dealing with the fallout of that great sin. But even here we see that our numbers, our days, are numbered by God. And he can change that number. He can prolong our years. He can heal us and bring us back from the grave. And so as I reflect on stanza one, here's the question I think you should ask yourself. What pit are you in? What part of your life do you feel is sinking? Stanza two, calling the saints to sing. He says, sing praises to the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Now, when I read this, I thought, what is he praising God for? And he says, praise his holy name. Now, what does that mean? What's a name? We don't really use that phrase anymore. Well, a name is like a brand, trademark. Everything that he does, everything that's his, everything that's associated with him. If you have his name, you have his protection. And you're being called to praise his holy name. Now, why is he holy? What does that mean in this context? Well, in this psalm, the word holy means totally unique, special. There's no one like him. He's one of a kind. And that begs the question, what's so special about the Lord? This is a question children are going to ask. And your non-Christian neighbor is going to ask, what's so special about the Lord? And that's a question that we should be able to answer, both with the scriptures and our own lives and our own testimony. And here's what David says. He gives you two gripping scenes to express the holiness of the Lord. He says, for the anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Imagine a, a home video playing behind me of your whole life, beginning to end. You know, those old home recordings with like the dig 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 you know what I'm talking about? Like the Wonder Years kind of deal. And you're watching these home videos of you at every stage of life, your whole life. And in every one of those scenes, you see the Lord is there. And he's smiling at you, and he's laughing with you, and he's hugging you, and he's throwing you up, and he's holding your hand when you're just a little guy. And then he's cheering and tearing up at your graduation. And he's there at your wedding, and he's toasting. And you see him there, he's holding you tight when you when you lose a child to miscarriage. And then you and your spouse are so excited because you're getting your first home. And it's because your, your Lord is giving you the keys to his house. He's going to move out so you can move in, so you can have your first home. And you see all this happening across your life. And you think, why? Why is he so loving to you? And the answer is, is because he delights in you. You make him very happy. His favor lasts a lifetime. There's no point in your life where you watch the video where you won't see him smiling and loving and delighting in you, giving you his favor. That's the picture that David's painting here. That's how the Lord feels towards you, his people. Now, what about his anger, though? He's just Ned Flanders. You know, everything's fine. It's okay, buddy. It's okay. No, there's anger, too. You see it, but you have to be careful and you have to pay attention. It's only a moment. It flashes up at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. Like when you stole from the, the gas station, when you hit your sister, when you played the fool and you followed the crowd instead of standing up for what was right. 
when you got angry and stiff-necked and you wouldn't listen to reason, you see his anger flare up. It's there, but you have to pay attention because it's just moments. But it's a lifetime of favor in those videos. This is the first picture of what makes our God holy. This is what makes him worthy of praise. This is why we should praise and trust him, because there is no one like our Lord. There is no one who has that kind of love towards you like the Lord. The second scene is a sleepover. It's a sleepover. He says, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. It's a sleepover. And weeping and wailing are there, and they're spending the night, and they're screaming, and they're yelling, and you're just like exhausted, and you can't fall asleep, but you do fall asleep. And when you wake up in the morning, they're gone. And who's there waiting for you? Joy. And she has a cup of coffee. And you get to spend the whole day with her. And what that means is, for God's people, we always have something to look forward to. There's no hopelessness with the Lord. There's always something to look forward to. It doesn't even matter of weeping and wailing or screaming all night because you have the morning to look forward to. And in the morning, they're gone and there's just joy. And you have the whole day and the whole evening and the rest of the night. There's always something to look forward to with the Lord. This is why he has a holy name. This is why he's special, one of a kind. There's no God like the Lord. And this is why we love and serve him. And if you want a relationship with the one true God who truly loves you, then you receive that relationship by receiving his son Jesus as your Lord and King and Savior. You give him your whole life. You say, Lord, I confess I am a sinner and I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I don't know that I can change myself, but you can change me. But I agree with you that I've been worshiping myself. I've been worshiping selfie. I do what I want. I do when I want it. I do how I want it, where I want it, for as long as I want it. And I do me. I was trained to do me as an American. This is how the Americans do it. But it's self-worship. And I want you to be my God. I want to worship and serve you. And I know that you're holy, that you're good, that you're right and just. And I sin in my life. I know the things that I shouldn't do that I do. And I know the things that I shouldn't, that I do do. I confess. I'm guilty before you. And I ask for your forgiveness. Because I have heard from the Christians that Jesus died for my sin. And I don't want to die for my sin. I want him to be my sacrifice, my substitute. I want his death to be my death. I want his, his burial to be my burial. And I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. I want to be adopted into your family. I want your power and help and grace. I want all these good things that you're saying you give to your people. I want those things too. And I will give up everything I have if that means I get you. So please forgive me in the name of Jesus and receive me as your son or daughter. I give you my whole life. Amen. Now you don't have to say all those words. But I said all those words so that you get the heart of what it is that begins that relationship with God. You give him everything because you see who he is and how worthy he is. And if you do that, then you'll be brought from death to life, what the Bible calls born again. You become baptized in his name. You get dunked into the water as a symbol of joining him in his death and then being raised to new life. Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and come be a part of the people of God here at Church in the Valley. I'm saying this right now because I just spent a lot of time talking about how awesome our Lord is. And maybe for the first time you see it and you want it. So don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to respond. You don't know what happens tomorrow. You don't know if your life is going to last. But when you die, you stand before God and you stand before his judgment seat. And either you stand there next to Christ who has his arm around you and says, paid for, forgiven, pardoned, he's with me. Or you stand there on your own 
in your own righteousness, guilty for your sins, with no one to appeal to. Receive the salvation God is offering you today. What questions should we ask at the end of of stanza two? If God is a lifetime of favor and moments of anger, what, what does that mean for me? Well, here's the question. What must change in my relating so that it's a lifetime of favor with moments of anger? Fathers, mothers, brothers and sisters listening to this, are you the same way in the home videos as the Lord? If we watched home videos here of you, would we see you smiling and cheering and grace and love, or we see something else? Is your, is your favor measured in gallons or drops? Are you a person who's lots of green lights and just a couple reds, a lot of yeses and just a few noes? Because that's who the Lord is. That's what he's like. What are you like? And how can you imitate your father in the way you relate to your husband and your wife? In the way you relate to your children? In the way you relate to your parents? In the way you relate to your siblings and your friends and your coworkers? How can you be more like the Lord? A lifetime of favor with moments of anger. Stanza three. Stanza three. What got us into this mess? David says, when I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when, I, your fav- when you favored me, You made my royal mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. He's looking back before the crisis. He's saying, before I was in this mess, things were great. I was healthy and I was wealthy and I was secure and I was prosperous. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But what David is saying is there was a problem and the problem was my attitude. The problem was my attitude. I arrogantly took this for granted. And when I did that, I played the fool. It's interesting. David chooses a very familiar phrase in the psalm, in stanza three. He says, I will never be shaken. Now, that's a a phrase that's used several times in the Bible, and that's always put in the mouth of the villain, of the halal, of the self-exalter, of the proud man. And this is a clue for careful Bible readers. David's communicating something, a famous line from the villains. You see it in Psalm 10, for example. It says, for the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved, though Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Same thing the wicked say. And then notice where David says he goes. When he was playing the fool, when he was getting cocky, when he said, I will never be shaken, where did he find himself? Well, he found himself in the place of the dead. He found himself in the same place that the arrogant and the proud are sent. He says, I went to the depths. I went to the realm of the dead. I went to the pit. These are the realms that are created for Satan and his demons. It's also where haughty, arrogant people are cast. And you see in Isaiah, for example, cocky kings being sent to the same place. And David is saying, I was acting like one of these people. So Isaiah 14, it says, I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is a cocky king talking. And the Lord says, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Same place. So David got cocky, he played the fool, he spoke like these arrogant kings, and he got what they got. He was heading to where they were heading. These words show us that David said, I was cocky and the Lord humbled me. I forgot about the ironclad law of the universe, which is that the Lord is always the big rock. He's always the most important factor to consider in every situation. He is the most important person in the room. Never take your eyes off the Lord because he's the one who matters most. He's the one who's directing and protecting and governing all of life. He is the unmovable mover. He is the God Lord of all reality. 
And I started getting big for my britches and thinking that I was doing all these good things for myself. And I got arrogant. Now, I thought, this is bad. I don't want to talk like this. I don't want to go down to the pit. I don't want to go down to the grave. I don't want to end up here. So I said to myself, as I read this psalm, who talks like this? Who is talking like this? But immediately the Lord was like, no, no, that's not the right question. When do you talk like this, Matt? When do I talk like this? When do you talk like this? And I thought of five situations where I could find myself talking like this. I will never be shaken arrogantly. Number one, when I'm young and I have no cares and I'm confident, I'm optimistic about the future and fellowship and faithfulness to the Lord is more of a maybe, it's not a must. That's when I'm saying I will never be shaken. Or when I'm financially secure. I'm set for the foreseeable future. You know, I got a house. I got retirement. I just got a little bit of debt. Cars paid off. I got a steady job. I got a predictable salary. You know, things are good. I will never be shaken. Or what about when I'm buff, when I'm beautiful, when I'm confident in my good health? I've got a lot of years ahead of me. I feel great. I look great. I am great. I will never be shaken. That's what a lot of people's Instagram and TikTok uh, profiles are screaming. Number four, when I'm in charge, I'm powerful, I'm protected, I'm in control of my world. Yeah, God's in control, but I'm in control of my world. I, mean, I got things locked down pretty good. I got a good tight grip on my world. And that means I can make things happen for myself. I will never be shaken. And then finally, when I'm popular and I have status, this could be in high school, middle school, this could be at work. I mean, when I got status and I'm popular, people love me. They're always going to be in my corner. I will never be shaken. These statements, these, these times in our lives are temptations, just like David experienced. That's what he's telling us. He's saying, man, when I was in those situations, I got cocky and I played the fool. So ask yourself, which of these five do you find yourself trusting? Which of these five statements are you most tempted to make? Now, you may be thinking, well, this is so I should like not be for those things. No, 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 you should be. Those are all blessings from God. But don't confuse the gift with the giver. Well, then how should I respond if God gives me these good things? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next in this next stanza. How do we get out? If you fall, how do you get up? If you're in the pit, how do you get out? What do you do? Who do you call? And here's what David said. To the Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I'm silenced, Lord? If I go down to the pit, what would the dust praise you? Is the dust going to proclaim your faithfulness? Why do this? Why take my life? How does this benefit you, Lord? And then he just says, for Lord, Lord, please be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. Just please save me. So what did David do when he found himself in the pit? When he was on death's doorstep, he made a phone call. And the question is, who do you call? Who's your first call, your last call? When you find yourself in the pits, if we were to check your caller ID, whose name would keep coming up? Would it be the Lord's or would we see five missed calls to wealth, 15 missed calls to power, status, health, a bunch of calls to friends? If your first call is to anyone other than the Lord, if the person you're trusting and depending on really putting your hope in is anyone other than the Lord, And you're standing on sinking sand. Only the Lord is the kind of person with the power and the love and the character to actually rescue you from the pit. 
So why should you call the Lord? Why should he be your first call? Because he is the one who put you in the pit in the first place. It's the Lord who governs men. It's the Lord who has our lives in his hands. It's not some accident. He is the one who gives us our stories. He's the one who's guiding our lives. And if you find yourself in a pit, it's because he puts you there and he can take you out. He is the big rock. He is the most important person in every room. This is what it means to do business with the Lord. This is what it means to fear the Lord. I fear him because he's the one who puts people in pits. And he's the one who saves them and brings them out. And you may be thinking, yeah, I get it. So what do I do? So call. Call to the Lord, just like David did. Call for his mercy. It's the only sane solution. Call, cry, Lord, help me. And in your heart of hearts, you may think, well, why would he? Maybe he won't help me. Maybe he doesn't want to help me. Maybe, you know, he, he knows my sins. He knows how I screwed up. I'm not a really good person. I, I'm not a good Christian, so he's probably not going to help me. And I can't really trust him. And I don't want to put my hope in him because what if he lets me down? And what you have there is you have some twisted theology. You think there's a peace out clause in the Bible. And I know because I've thought this too. And I've talked to other brothers in Christ. And they've told me too. I mean, it's crazy how many of us think this. We think that there's some weird spot in Zephaniah or Leviticus or somewhere up in Isaiah 46 where the Bible says, but I don't have to be good to you in this situation. Yeah, I love you, and I'm a gracious God, and my favor lasts a lifetime, and I'm, I'm all loving, and I'm all these good things, but really, I don't have to help you in these situations, because right here, you know, in, in Clause 6, sub-section 45, it says, and that's why I can just drop you. That's why I can forsake you. That's why I can say peace out. We don't actually believe that the Lord is good and loving and for us all the time. We think it's a transactional relationship. When I'm a good boy, he's kind, but when I'm a bad boy... Peace out. The peace out clause. The idea that David could just cry out for the Lord's mercy and he would save him, that he would change his mind, that he would pull him out of the pit. I mean, I don't know if I can really put my hope in that kind of God because what if he lets me down? Hezekiah has hoped in that God. Hezekiah learned that it was true. What, did he, what happened with Hezekiah? Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed, Lord. And before Isaiah had gone out to the middle of the court, before he was in the parking lot, before he got his keys out to find his car, the Lord was like, you get back in there and you tell my son Hezekiah, I'm going to heal him. Why? I heard his tears. I heard his prayer. I'm going to give him 15 more years. I'm going to let him go back to worship. What? Can you imagine being Isaiah? He's going over here, jerked back over here. Go back there and tell him. Why? Because that's the kind of God we serve. And how do you know it's true? I mean, yeah, that was David and that was Hezekiah a long time ago because that God put on flesh and suffered the most brutal murder so that you could be brought into the family, so that you could be forgiven, so that his love and grace could be poured out into your life every single day. The cross of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ for you was done while you were still sinning, while you were his enemy. How much more will he be good to you now that you're his friend, now that you're his son and daughter? Oh, God loves you. And the cross is the proof. You can hold on to it. There is no peace out clause in the Bible. God doesn't have to be gracious to us. He chooses to do this because that's the kind of guy he is. He is an overflowing fountain of love and grace and mercy. He's a lifetime of favor with moments of anger. This is the God that David discovered in this trial that he went through. This is the God that he's singing to and writing a song about. And he's inviting us to come and worship. This is the God that we serve. So, what pit are you in? 
Pick up the phone and call and call and call and call and call and keep asking until you're out. Now, do you believe this? Do you believe this God is real? Do you believe what God is telling you about himself today? If you do, how do you respond in faith? Here are four things you can do. Here are some steps you can take to respond to the truth. You believe it? So now walk in it. Number one, for the first time, confess and repent of your sin. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're in a pit individually, then confess and repent and cry out for God's mercy individually. If your family, if your household's in a pit, then confess and repent and cry out for God's mercy as the household. Churches, nations, wherever you are, whatever pit you're in, the fastest way out is confession and repentance and crying out for God's mercy. Number two, live in the light. And number three, seek teachers and true friends. If you live in the light and you're being honest and open, people can speak to you about, well, pits that you're falling into, directions you shouldn't go. If you have teachers who know God and his word and how to walk faithfully with him better than you do, they can help you. Walk in faith, walk in righteousness so that you can enjoy the blessings of God. And finally, number four, say thank you. Always for everything. This is what God's will is for you. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. God wants us to be thankful, happy, grateful people who thank God for everything. Not taking credit, not saying I will never be shaken, but just so grateful for the goodness of God. That's what he wants. That's the end game. And that's why I named this final stanza the end game. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Can you imagine being David? Can you imagine how it would feel to be freed from death? If you've never been in that situation, it's almost impossible to imagine. But I want you to imagine that you're young, you're a couple, you're about to get married, you have a fiancé, you're beloved, and then something tragic happens. And they die. And for circumstances you can barely explain, you have to do the funeral the same day that you were actually going to get married. Which is just pain upon pain. And you're there at the funeral, and everybody's wailing, you're numb, your ears are ringing, you're exhausted, but you can't sleep. You're hungry, but you can't eat. And you just want to crawl down inside of that coffin with them. But then the Lord comes, shows up at the funeral. He walks up to your beloved and raises them from the dead. And everybody starts screaming and crying and cheering. And he says, enough with the funeral. Take off your clothes, your mourning clothes. Get dressed. We're going to have a wedding today. And you get married. And several hours later, you're at the reception and people are singing and they're laughing and they're dancing. And you're dancing with your beloved and you are just, you're in tears and you're laughing. And you're in tears. You're just so grateful. You're so happy. And you look across the dance floor and you see the Lord there. How do you feel? You feel a level of gratitude that you didn't know your heart could have. You want to burst. You're so grateful. You're so thankful. That's what David is showing us here. And that is what God wants. The Lord has an end game. What is fitting for the Lord Jesus? What is fitting for someone so glorious, so holy, so loving, so good? How, how do we respond in a way that is fitting for the Lord Jesus? The answer is praise and thanks and glory. And what better way 
than for the Lord to write these stories that we live. The deeper the depths he lifts you out of, the greater the, the, the sorrow that is swallowed up in joy, the greater the glory, the louder the praise, the deeper the thanks that he receives. God wants you to love him, but he also wants his son Jesus to receive the glory and praise and honor that is due his holy name. And our lives are a means to that end. Our lives are a means to the end of glorifying the Lord Jesus. But it doesn't end with a funeral. It doesn't end with wailing. It ends with joy. It doesn't end in sackcloth. It ends at a wedding. Yes, there are sorrows and there's depths that we experience in our lives. But those are the basis for the great joy and praise and glory that God receives. Our lives are not an end in themselves. The glorification and worship and honoring and loving and seeing and knowing the Lord Jesus for who he really is. That is the end of all of our lives. That is the truth. And we don't come out poor. We don't come out wounded. We don't come out ripped off on the other side. But rather, we come out full and overflowing. We get to be a part of it. And imagine you were standing there with the Lord. After all that he did for you, bringing your beloved back to life, and you're standing there with him. What would you say? What should you say? And this is where David really shines. Because David figured it out. He came up with the perfect response. He said, Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Oh, Lord, my God, I will thank you. I will praise you. I am yours forever. And that is what the Lord wants for us. This is the Lord that we remember today. This is the God that we proclaim this week to our friends and our family and our kids and our neighbors. The Lord that we get to sing to every Sunday. And that I hope you'll sing to now. This is the God we serve. The Lord Jesus Christ. For whom we give great thanks. And who told us all of this about himself today. Through Psalm 30. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise your son Jesus for his grace and holiness and love. We thank you for taking our sorrows and turning them into joys. We thank you that you're a lifetime of favor, moments of anger. Lord, I pray that you would save those who have not yet been saved. And that you would encourage and comfort and lift out of darkness those who are in darkness. And that you would apply these questions and these thoughts and these meditations to our hearts and our lives as we need this week. In Jesus' name, amen.